Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, according to the will of the Father, use this moment, this time, to teach us out of this word and to put the truth of this word in us so that we could live as worthy witnesses to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, we are going to, as I say, go through this book chapter by chapter. And so today, we are going to look at chapter 1. It's 27 verses long. And the book of James is a little tricky to structure or to outline. Because he has a, a way of moving through his material that kind of goes back and forth. It's not highly systematic. It's more holistic. He moves from one thought to another and then comes back. And it has a kind of a natural flow to it, but it doesn't necessarily have a highly defined structure. Nevertheless, in the first chapter, you can see there's a central idea related to faith, which is one of James's chief interests throughout the entire book, that I would like to describe as, in its negative uh, term, double-mindedness. In other words, if James is asking us to hold on to, to latch on to a practical principle of Christian living, it's to be single-minded. Will you say that? Single-minded. In other words, it's a thing of purpose, isn't it? In these years of purpose, that's one of the reasons why a book like James, so rich in purpose, so focused on faith, is so worthy of our study. If you're going to be single-minded, it means you're going to know what is primary. First things first, keeping things in order so that they don't go out of order. Being single-minded means not being distracted. It means having an intent focus on that thing which is most important, a mission statement of life, if you will. Double-mindedness is the opposite of that. It's getting distracted. It's being divided in your loyalties or in your attention. The things of the Spirit cannot be well pursued if you are simultaneously trying to pursue the things of the world and the flesh. Why? Because they go in two different directions. If you're going to book a flight to New York, do you really want to route it through Honolulu? Not if you're going from L.A. Now, I won't tell you which is the world and flesh and which is the spiritual thing, Although Honolulu seems like it ought to be spiritual to me, although I guess it appeals to the flesh. In any case, my point is not to determine anything in value about those two cities, but to say when there are two things in opposite directions, you can't pursue both of them at once. You're going to be moving closer to one and further away from the other. There's no way to get closer to God while cozying up with the world. And God's not fooled by saying that you're close to him if what he sees in your life is an interest in fleshly things. That's double-mindedness. And it doesn't give you clarity of purpose and it doesn't give you stability in your foundations. Single-mindedness is what James is going to call us to in this chapter. Now, as we come to the study of the first chapter of James, I have to do a little extra heavy lifting with you today to prepare us for the whole length of this series. So I want to talk a bit first about the book of James in general. As I've mentioned, we refer to it as the letter of James. And it is actually one of the New Testament epistles. Now, it might feel a little bit like you're in the classroom for a moment, and that's by design. I, I want us to learn. 
I want us to be people dedicated to biblical literacy and have a good understanding of what we're talking about when we're talking about these things. And you're able to learn. Many of you have already learned this, and it's always good to have a refresher. But if it's new material for you, you can get this. Like I said, James is not difficult, but that doesn't mean it's not challenging. So it's one of the New Testament epistles. That is one of the writings of the apostles those uh, leader followers of Jesus, that is the followers of Jesus that he himself put into primary roles of leadership under him. These writings by the apostles and by other early church leaders were provided to believers, usually communities of faithful people, sometimes individuals, in that early era, and were ultimately recognized as having been inspired by the Holy Spirit and collected by the church uh, into these uh, letters that are um, put into a, a, a category within the New Testament between the Gospels and the book of Acts and the book of Revelation. So if you're reading through the New Testament, once you've finished the book of Acts, you are into the epistles and you're going to be in the epistles all the way to Revelation. Now, in the liturgy of church, you may have heard Acts and Revelation referred to as readings from the epistles. And in that sense, it's sort of just like the category of New Testament books that are not the Gospels. But there actually is something um, specific about an epistle. James is called a general epistle. Uh, the letters of Peter, the letters of John are called that as well. And it just means that it's not one of the letters of Paul. And that's because the Apostle Paul wrote the lion's share of these letters in the New Testament. So there are the Pauline epistles, and then there are the general epistles. And those are fewer in number, uh, and each individual writer of those epistles has left fewer letters for us. But that certainly doesn't mean that they are of any lesser interest and as we'll see in the book of James, it is just as glorious a contribution to our understanding of the life of faith as anything in all of the Bible. Now, why this term epistle gets used is of some relevance to us. Actually, epistle can be defined in a variety of ways. You can use it just to simply enough in the English language to say it's a synonym for letter. It's another word for letter. If you read an epistolary novel, it means a novel that is composed of lots of letters. Or there are plays that are like that. There was a play by A.R. Gurney, very popular and probably still called Love Letters. And the whole play is just letters of people back and forth to each other. That's an epistolary play. So it can just mean a letter. But in the Bible, I've already mentioned that it's not just any letter. It's a specific kind of letter, the apostolic writings that I just described. And that's because in the ancient world in which the New Testament was written in, epistle was actually a recognized literary form. It's something that you can see in the academic or in the philosophical writings of the Egyptians and the Greeks. And it constitutes a kind of communication. It has its certain attributes. Greetings and, and uh, conclusions or salutations are frequently a part of the epistle form. But what's maybe most important to recognize about it is that it is intended as a teaching tool. It's like a written sermon. When you think of epistle, think of it as a written sermon. Didactic content means teaching content. It is provided in order to teach an individual, a group of people, or even society at large. And so this is the type of book that we have in the epistle of James. 
Now, we went through the book of Romans together last year and the year before. If you were part of the church at that time, we went through the book of Ephesians together. Both of these are epistles of Paul. And they were written to specific groups of people, to the church in Ephesus, to the church or churches in Rome. Here, James is apparently writing in a more general way. In the very beginning of the book, in verse 1, in fact, it states that this is a letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. In other words, the Jewish diaspora. If you want to know more about that and about Judaism in general, that's our subject today in PSOM at 1 p.m. You can send an email to info at mypcf.org and I'll let you into the class to audit it today if you'd like. We're going to talk about Judaism. Suffice it for our purposes now to say, in this era in which James was writing, first of all, most people that were followers of Jesus were Jewish followers of Jesus. That is, they were Messianic Christians. They were Jewish by, by birth, by ethnicity, by training and education, but their Jewish faith found its focus in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, we know that in this era, there were also many people coming to faith in Jesus who were Gentile in their background. And James is aware of that too. This letter may have been written around the time of an event called the Jerusalem Council, which you can read about in Acts chapter 15, in which that was a big point of debate in the church at that time. In fact, their thought was not, can Jewish people be Christians, but can anyone else? You know, or is faith in Jesus itself inherently Jewish? And what the council decided, and council was overseen, not by Peter, not by Paul, although both of them presented there, but probably most likely by James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at that time. What that council determined was everyone can be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the reason they determined that was because that was what the message and resurrection and life of Jesus and the work of his spirit in the church at that time was making clear. But James is himself a Jewish man, just like his brother Jesus. If indeed this is the brother of Jesus, and I will come to that in a moment, I, I presume that it is. And so his Judaism shows up quite strongly and beautifully and wonderfully in this letter because it has many of the patterns and the values of Old Testament wisdom literature. For instance, like the writings of Solomon, it, it has a, a, a proverbial quality to it, even in its structuring. As I mentioned, if you read through uh, the book of Proverbs, you see that there's not a narrative or even a systematic approach to wisdom, but there are these little beads of wisdom. There are these little nuggets of, of pithy, wise sayings that are all sort of uh, compiled together. And there's, there's that quality uh, to the book of James as well. Um, and similar to Ecclesiastes and so forth. It has, as I mentioned, a very practical focus, a very, if you want a really fancy word here, quotidian focus. That is to say, day in, day out living. Daily living and daily living as a follower of Jesus. It also has a very strong moral sensibility. Again, these are all things that you really get from the Old Testament scriptures that would have been most familiar to James. He is dedicated to and calling, calling other followers to a deep appreciation for and an active demonstration of unity among believers, fairness, temperance, which means having control of oneself and not giving in to excesses, patience, and perseverance. Good stuff. Not necessarily fun stuff, 
though, right? It's not like people hear it and go, ooh, goody, but we should. Because as we've been talking about, these attributes, including patience, are virtues. And there's power in virtue. Remember when Jesus was walking through the crowd and there was a woman who was ill, bleeding and bleeding for years and years, and no doctor in the community could help her. And she thought, if I could just grab on to the hem of his robe, I could be healed. And she did, and she was. And Jesus felt virtue flow out of him, is the way that some English translations put it. What he felt was the power of God at work through him to heal someone. That's what patience is. Virtue that flows with healing power, the power of God. That's what perseverance is. It's not just stick-to-itiveness. You don't have it in you. It gets into you from God. I don't have it in me. It isn't about our strength. It's about his righteousness. Now it's, that's enough to get us excited, right? Because James is saying you can have that and you should have that. And if you don't have it, there's no excuse because it doesn't start in you. It starts with God but it needs to be in you if it's going to flow through you. Now, in the first century A.D., which is, of course, the time in which Jesus lived and died and rose again and the time in which the church was early forming, the name James was quite common, and it still is today. There are at least five men in the New Testament that we can point to who are named Jesus, including, not, not incidentally, two of the 12 apostles that Jesus himself appointed. We don't talk about them as much, but the scripture does make clear to us that Jesus had brothers. You look at Matthew 13, you look at Mark chapter 6, and you will find description of Jesus' brothers. And these brothers included one named James, which also, by the way, is a version of the Hebrew name Jacob, and one named Jude, or it's sometimes rendered Judas. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. This is a brother in the family of Jesus. In fact, the epistle of Jude appears to be a letter by the brother of Jesus named Jude because that author indicates that he's a follower of Jesus and that he's a brother of James. So from very early on in the church era and very early on in the legacy of the Christian faith, right from the beginning, it's really fair to say, Christians have attributed this letter to James, the brother of Jesus. And I think that is a reasonable tradition to embrace and is probably the most likely explanation of who's writing it. So I will speak about James when I do in those terms. Although the book itself does not specify that he is a brother of Jesus, it does not even specify that he is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but it is likely that he is both. And so, what do we know about that brother of Jesus? We know that he was not an initially a believer in Jesus. He believed that Jesus existed. He didn't deny the existence of his brother. He didn't accept the messiahship of his brother. And I don't think we can blame him necessarily for that. There is a saying that Jesus himself quoted that says a prophet is accepted everywhere except in his hometown. And if your hometown can't accept you, how about the people in your home? By the way, you might be someone who the Lord is doing something in you and your own family members might find it harder to accept than people that you work with or people in the church. Don't be discouraged by that. You're not alone. Jesus faced the same thing. 
So his brothers were not initially followers of his, including James. But at some point, James becomes a dedicated follower of Jesus as the Christ. And it seems that it's because he sees Jesus resurrected from the dead. And that is what convinces him as it convinces us. It is an encounter with the risen Christ that is truly transformative and nothing less. There is no substitute for having seen Jesus, not necessarily with your own eyes, as James got to see, but with the eyes of faith. Now, James saw the resurrected Christ, but he saw it also with the eyes of faith, or in that he received the faith to believe and became a follower of Jesus, and not only that, but a prominent apostolic leader. He was not one of the 12 that Jesus had appointed. He didn't even follow Jesus in that fashion at that time, but he did rise to prominence after the resurrection of Jesus as a leader in the early church. And in fact, that leader that is known as James, who was leading the Jerusalem church, the mother church as we call it, speaks in Acts chapter 15 to that council meeting in a way that reflects the same kind of language and speech that we find in the letter of James. There's also some extra biblical sources that we might be wise to be aware of. Eusebius is a well-known early church historian, and he records that James was known as James the Just, this also fits perfectly with the thematic features of the letter of James because the letter and the man were both very interested in piety and had a high regard for holy righteousness. And, okay, Hegesippus, say that three times fast. I'm not even sure that I'm saying it right, so let's just move on. That guy with the H letter name said that James was a leader of the early church in Jerusalem. So we have some good sourcing, not only for his life, but also for his death. Another very well-known historian, Jewish man and Roman soldier named Josephus, records that James, in fact, died as a martyr, that he was put to death by being beaten with stones, having stones thrown to him, like the first martyr, Stephen, in fact, Uh, in 62 AD. So that would have been about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, roughly. Uh, James actually dies himself, uh, and undoubtedly for his faith. It was a time of intense persecution of the Christian church, and especially of leaders. Now, we know from some other features that I won't go into that the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council probably took place around 49 AD. So this letter is probably written somewhere between roughly 45 to 65 AD. And that, I say 65, even though we have a death date of 62, because it may have been compiled from his writings or from his uh, sayings even after his death. But somewhere in the middle of that century, Uh, of that first century AD, and it has come down all these years to us intact because they recognized that the Holy Spirit was speaking through these writings. Now, it's possible that he, James, sat down and wrote this in one sitting as a letter, a general letter to the church, but its discursive nature, the way it kind of flows in and out of subjects back and forth and recurringly, its unstructured um, wisdom literature qualities, this pithy, pragmatic uh, sayings compiled together, seems to reflect that it's probably some of his sermons or some of his writings that have all been joined together by him or perhaps by an editor later on because they recognized this stuff is good. This is so good that we can't lose it. Or he may have himself felt, the Lord is speaking through this, and I want the church to be matured by it. 
In the first chapter of James that we're looking at today, there's some things I'd like us to especially focus on. And one of them, as I've already mentioned, is this single-minded pursuit of discipleship. A single-minded and focused dedication to the Lord and rejection of double-mindedness. That is, rejecting the errors of giving in to doubt about God and what God says, or of chasing after the glories and riches of the world. James starts off his letter by urging us to avoid that worldliness and fleshliness, not be entranced and enticed by riches, but instead to value the virtues of patience and perseverance, and even to see our trials as blessings as opportunities for joy in the face of hardship, for life in the face of death, for faith in the face of doubt, for light shining in the darkness as we mature through patience into strong, resilient, praying, persevering faith. So, James chapter 1, defeating the double mind. It's a spirit of worldliness, fleshliness, fear, and doubt. Let me say that again. Worldliness fleshliness, fear, and doubt. We want to defeat that. And the way to defeat that is not in our own strength or in a kind of rigid morality, but instead by receiving the spirit and the strength of God's word, believing it and acting on it. Now, what God arranges is tests. And we've been talking about tests from right from the start today, right? Tests determine, is it in you? And if it's not, then it's time to be tested again. I'm very proud of my younger brother who passed his CPA tests and has become a certified public accountant. That's a series of tests, and it takes a lot of studying. And you know what? It's good that they have to go through that, because who wants to go to a CPA who just said, yeah, I felt like I'm a CPA. It seems like I can do it well. You don't want a doctor who says, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Well, how do you know? Well, I read the books but were you tested, right? How about you go to a trainer at the gym and the trainer says, well, you can work out with the weights or not, or you can, you can run on the track or not. Uh, good luck. Well, there's no training with that trainer, right? How are we going to test and see if what we are doing is working? How is it going to work unless there's some traction involved, right? In which the action really gets a grip on the road. God allows testing to come in our lives. We don't like it. We often don't want it. But what James tells us by the Spirit is testing perfects us. It brings about a better result. The result is faith. And it's only by faith that you can receive all the virtues that God wants to give. God himself gives the virtue of faith to those who ask for it. James will tell us that God gives wisdom to those who ask for it. And yet, if you're asking without the faith to believe that you're going to receive, there's no way for you to receive. You can't really believe unless you believe by faith. But once you believe, you receive what God has got for you. And what he has got for you are virtues that empower and protect, including patience. God will give you the grace by which to stand strong and to go on. And as you go on, you'll be able to face the new trials that come because God will empower you as you apply the word of God in action in your life. 
Testing perfects, faith receives, patience protects, and action empowers. These are the four major sections of the scripture that I want to look at with you together today. Let's read. James, a servant of God, this is chapter 1, verse 1, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And immediately he moves into one of his most famous statements. In fact, even in this year of patience, we have already looked at several passages from James chapter 1 that you're going to recognize right here and now. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience. The word can be translated steadfastness, constancy. Not being blown by the wind, not being knocked over by the waves, not being shaken by the earthquake, not being shaken by COVID, not being shaken by politics, not being confused by media, not being beholden to the opinions of people or in the sway of the enticement of riches or of other appeals to the appetites of the flesh, but being strong, steadfast, persevering with endurance. It comes through testing. You don't get the good grade without the testing. You don't get the degree. You're not able to do the work without the test. So when the test comes, don't run in the other direction. Stand in the place of testing and ask for faith. Pray for wisdom. Ask for strength. Hold on to Christ. And he will give it to you. And when he does, the patience will put into process a maturing effect so that you can be perfected, so that you can be completed and be outfitted with everything that you need, not lacking anything. A couple of great Christian leaders of the past speak to this mentality. I love the preacher Charles Spurgeon. And he said, anything is a blessing which makes us pray. If something is prompting you to pray, then you could be grateful that it came your way today. Now, I know there are things that you and I aren't grateful for. So it's not pretending to be grateful. I'm so glad that granddad had a stroke. Of course not. But what you can say is, I'm so glad that my father in heaven knows how to handle it. And that I can pray to him. And that I can lean on him. And inasmuch as this is pressing me towards God, I thank God that he is there and that he's drawing me close to him. Anything that makes us pray is a blessing. Many of you are familiar with Smith Wigglesworth. Funny sounding name for a very powerful man. Powerful in the things of the spirit and the word. Humble, but like James, awfully interested in what is just and right. And also in what will make us strong in faith. Smith Wigglesworth said, great faith is a product of great fights. Now we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. He's talking about spiritual fights. Unless the flesh and blood you're wrestling with is your own. And if it's putting your own members to death in the sense of putting to death that fleshly appetite in order to embrace the spirit. Well, that's a fight. But it also produces faith. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. The next time you have a test come your way, remember this test is my testimony. Now what your testimony is will depend on how you respond to the test. 
Jesus wants your testimony to be glorious. And in fact, he wants it to be a witness for him. So when the test comes, come to Christ. And out of Christ, you will receive what you need for the test and the glory of a testimony. Great triumphs can only come, says Smith Wigglesworth, out of great trials. So count it a joy when the Lord allows you to have a great trial because it means he wants you to have a great testimony and a great victory. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, and says, Brothers and sisters, you need to know about the severe trials we experienced while we were in Western Turkey. Paul is talking about his missionary experience, and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Why? Because he wants to impress them? Do you think that Paul is up there going, wow, you're going to think we are really hot stuff when you hear about how hard we've had it. Do you think Paul is a whiner who says, I just want to tell you, it's been so hard, and I just want you, you can't ignore it. I need you to feel my pain. No. Paul wants them to know because he wants them to know how to count it all joy. All of the hardships we passed through crushed us. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Beyond our ability to endure. Is it in you to face that? It better be because it's coming. So if it's not in you to face that, how will you face it? That's why Paul says, you need to know what you're going to face if you're going to follow Jesus. You think I'm impressive, says Paul. That's the implication here. But let me tell you something. It was way beyond what I could take. I couldn't handle it. What does Jack Nicholson say in A Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth. That might be a good little tagline for the book of James. Is it in you? Can you handle it? Paul says, you can't. We were so completely overwhelmed that we were about to give up entirely. Can you relate? I just want to give up. I'm done. I can't take this. It felt like we had a death sentence written upon our hearts. And now Paul says something really surprising. We still feel it to this day. Why do you think Paul says every day we're dying? Every day, wasting away. And yet, from glory to glory, we are growing stronger. We are going in the right direction. Why? It has taught us to lose, to lose all faith in ourselves. To stop relying on yourself. Stop it. That is the way of flesh. It profits nothing. You say, why do you get so adamant about it? I think it's the spirit. It's also a guy who's tired of his flesh. But you can't get out of the flesh by using the flesh to overcome the flesh. You've got to recognize it's time to give up all hope of living that way if you ever want the life of Christ to be flowing through you. Place all 
of your trust in the God who raises the dead. You know what Paul is saying here? We were so overwhelmed by the danger of death and its fear that what we finally had to do was die. And when we died to ourselves, then we realized we didn't need to be any afraid anymore because God resurrects the dead. That's powerful stuff, friends. He goes on later in the chapter to make the statement that is the focus of our collective prayer in the Foursquare family today as we come to the conclusion of our prayer and fasting. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. But you don't get to that place without dying. Without dying to the worldly point of view. Paul says we used to even look at Christ from the worldly point of view. But we don't do that anymore because we realize that in Christ, the old has died, the new has come. And so now we have the grace to sustain. Hallelujah. The testing of our faith is not easy. Don't expect it to be easy. It's not pleasant. But it is a joy, a privilege, a blessing because God uses it to produce powerful patience and real perseverance in you. These tests mature us to the point of perfecting our faith and our faithful perseverance. So now, it seems like James moves kind of to another thought, but there is a through line that we can track here. And that is, maybe you recognize that you don't have it in you to live this way. Or maybe you're having a hard time recognizing that there is any value in living this way. And both of those issues, someone who says, well, I don't think I can do that the way Paul did, or somebody who says, I don't think I'd want to, the answer to both of them is you need the mind of Christ. You need the wisdom of God. And if you don't have that, the way to get that is not by going to lots of classes and doing lots of study unless you first have said, Lord, Give me the understanding. Lord, I want your wisdom. Now, I teach classes, and I encourage you to be a part of them, but in our classes, we pray as we start and throughout the class because what we want most of all is for the wisdom of God to be reaching us and for us to be receiving it by faith. If you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives generously. Who doesn't lack wisdom? I mean, who doesn't lack it? If you have some wisdom, do you not want more? How much wisdom would you like? Now, I'm serious here. How much wisdom would you like to have? There is no limit. It's like somebody saying, well, how much money do you want? How much do you want? I would like to have a resource that is always there and never dries up. It applies to absolutely every circumstance and situation, and it's never wrong. Would you like to have it? It exists. It's real. Why, really, the question is, why don't you have it? Is it in you? Here, James says, ask. Amen. Amen. Jesus said, ask. It will be given to you. Seek. You will find it. Knock. And it'll be open to you. But guess what? Jesus does not cast pearls before swine. If you're just rooting around for any good thing and you're going to follow your snout to what smells nice, 
Don't expect that to be seeking the Lord. But when you come to God, don't doubt that he will give you what you need. If you are asking for wisdom, God will give it to you. But when you ask, you must believe. You must not doubt. Because the one who doubts is double-minded. They're like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. And that person shouldn't expect that anything's going to come away from God. Because first of all, if you're not asking with faith, you have no mechanism for receiving. That person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Again, Paul writes similarly. We must no longer, he says to the Ephesians, be like immature children tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of new teaching, every new idea, every new philosophy, everything that the world now says, this is what's really important. If you don't stand with this, then you don't stand. No, you don't fall for all of that because... You are not going to be influenced and tricked by people who know how to speak fancy lies so cleverly that they sound like the truth if you are following the wisdom of God. I pray more and more in these days, Lord, give me wisdom. Help me, Lord, to see things from your perspective, to understand things the way you do. And I haven't come to the end of that, and I never will, but I'll tell you something. I can see the difference in my life. I mean... God helps give us wisdom. And God helps us to defeat double-mindedness. And you've got to recognize double-mindedness in order to defeat it by faith. James later on in the letter is going to say, purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. So if you're doubting God, you are adoring fear and worshiping it. Now, all of us struggle with doubt of God. What I mean is if you're holding on to and harboring that. If you have doubt of God, ask him for wisdom. Wisdom is to believe him. Don't you think that's smart? Would God ever recommend to you? Well, I'll tell you one thing first. Don't listen to me. God says, don't believe me. No. (laughs) The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So if there's something else in your heart, purify your heart, you double-minded. The psalmist once said, I hate divided loyalties. I hate the double-minded, he says, but I love the law of God. Why? Because I hate lies and deception and confusion, but I love the truth. Elijah, the prophet in the days of old in the Old Testament said to Israel, how long are you going to keep going back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord is God, like you say, you say, then follow him. But if you've got all these idols and Asherah poles to Baal, then follow Baal. If Jesus is Lord of your life, great, follow him. But don't say that you're a follower of Jesus if you don't do what he tells us to do. Is he your master? Is he? Can he tell you what to do and you do it? If he calls you to walk into the fire and into the flame, are you going to follow? If he's not master, stop calling him Lord. But if you're going to call him Lord, then you had better be sure that you are really willing to follow. And if that's hard for you the way it's hard for me, then make up your mind to ask the Lord, make me faithful. Give me the wisdom to trust you. Give me the wisdom to follow you. Give me the strength. The Lord says 
These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They are double-minded. And they think they can fool me the way that they are fooled, but I'm not fooled. I see through it. And when the Lord came to us in person, in the flesh, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't fly from L.A. to New York and Honolulu at the same time. You're going in one direction or the other. And here, he makes it very clear where the flesh appetite is. I want to serve that which will enrich me. But Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon, the love of money, the money way of the world, which isn't just about money. It is about getting what you want. The food and the clothes and the fame and the power and the, and the, the uh, intimacy and the affection and the adoration of people. All of that's mixed up with love of money as well. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, says Paul. You can't sit at the Lord's table and then sit at the table of demons. When Paul was writing to Timothy, how do we determine who is really eligible to be a mature leader in the church? They need to be dignified people who are not double-tongued, is the Greek term. Double speakers, double talkers. This dialogos way of living, no. Jesus comes to the church and in the book of Revelation speaks to the church of Laodicea, but it's to us today. Hear him today. I know your deeds, says Jesus. I know what's in you. I see it. You're not hot. You're not cold. I wish you were one or the other, at least. But you're lukewarm, tepid, and I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth is how the Greek actually puts it. It's a very violent expulsion from my mouth. I'm going to spit this out. You ever drink something that you thought was going to be one way and it was another? You thought it was a fresh Coke and it's room temperature and absolutely flat? It's not necessarily that that's such a bad thing in and of itself, but it's the expectation. You thought a cup of coffee was going to be hot and it's cold? You thought something was going to be sweet and instead of sugar they put in salt? I remember when I was a kid and I went to an Asian buffet and I thought, oh, wow, they have this wonderful salmon. It's like fresh salmon sashimi or something. And it was ginger. So I ate a great big pile of it. And I was like, wow, that salmon is not salmon. Spit that out of your mouth. Actually, now I really like it. Maybe that's how I came to like it. I remember that also I thought wasabi was like green tea something. So that was another big shocker. I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you're not what you're supposed to be. So I'm getting rid of that. You say, now look what comes next. I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. See, if you have everything you need, you don't need Christ. But if all you need is Christ, then it doesn't matter what you don't have as long as you've got him. And if he's got you, you've got him. But is he in you? Are you in him? Don't you realize, he says, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you. Now, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus saying, my advice to you is come to me. Amen. Buy from me gold, my gold. You know what his gold is? Patience. You know what the price is? Testing. Pay the price of testing. I'll give you the gold of grace and patience. 
the gold of wisdom and faith, the gold of courage and life everlasting. And then you'll be rich. I'll give you white clothes to wear, so then you'll be clean. I'll give you salve to heal your blind eyes so that you can see, not according to the flesh, but by faith. Those whom I love, Jesus says, I rebuke and discipline. I test them so that they can be perfected. So repent. Be earnest and repent. Stop being double-minded. And you can have the reward of single-minded faith. And it's better than anything the world or your flesh could ever get for you. Oh, so much better. So now James moves into this territory. And to us, without having looked at these other passages, we might feel like, well, now he's just moving to another moral teaching about wealth and riches. But they're connected. And the whole of Scripture really helps us see that these things are connected. People who are double-minded and doubtful and lacking faith look at what is wealthy in the eyes of the world and they lust after it and they want it. And what James says here is, if you are blessed with resources as a believer, you should be humble. You should be humble. And if you are in humble circumstances because you lack wealth or resources, you should feel grateful. Why? Because if you're lacking things, you know how much you need Christ. It's easier for you to see. It's less of a test in a way because you know that you need him. So be grateful that he has given you the privilege of living this way. He trusts you enough that he knows that you would seek him in this circumstance. But if you are rich, be careful you shouldn't let your pride get puffed up. Instead, bring your pride down into humility because everything that you have, you don't get to keep if you're talking about the things of the world. The eternal things are going to be ours, but worldly things pass away. So the rich will fade away while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive, talk about a treasure, the crown of everlasting life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Persevering patiently in the testing of our faith means we've got to reject the double-mindedness that doubts that God hears our prayers or is willing to answer them or able to answer them or inclined to answer them. And it means resisting the double-mindedness that wants to reach out for fleshly features and worldly interests instead of or before the things of the Spirit. And if we look at the opposite version of this, confident faith is what receives single-minded assurance that we can trust God. He does hear. He does answer. And his faith-filled wisdom that he will grant to us enables us to persevere in the things of the Spirit. Listen, no one will be able to stand strong in the things that are coming unless God has given you the strength to do it. Anyone that is still relying on their flesh, when I bang my hand here on the pulpit, if you're relying on it, here's what the Lord is upset about. He's not upset because he wants you to know he's so angry at what a loser you are. That's not the attitude of the Lord. He's upset because he sees what's coming and he knows you'll fall like a house of cards unless you are relying upon him. If Paul says it's too much for me, how much more so for you and I? I mean, Paul was a man like us. James is going to say Elijah was a man like us. In fact, Jesus is a man like us or woman. What I mean is he is human like you. And what Jesus relied upon is the spirit 
And what you and I must rely upon is the Spirit. Now, I want to wrap up the chapter here with a final two points that sort of speak for themselves. I think here the great um, clarity of James really brings dividends. So let's just read them together. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Okay, so God does test, but he does not tempt. What God does is allow circumstances to come our way. Jesus went into the wilderness. Remember that in Luke chapter uh, 4 and in uh, Matthew chapter 4? Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the prompting of the Holy Spirit in order to what? In order to face temptations. But God the Father doesn't tempt him. The Holy Spirit doesn't tempt him. The devil tempts him. So it's not God's fault, but what God wants is for his son to be prepared to face off against the devil. He wants that for you and for me. He wants us to not be afraid of the enemy because we trust in God. Not because the enemy isn't scary, not because we are stronger, but because God is stronger. So God does not tempt. Don't let the enemy tell you, well, God's tempting you. God can't be tempted, not by evil, and he doesn't tempt anyone with evil. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Does any of us really need to be taught this? I mean, don't we already know this? We know this. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Hey, is it in you? Is there desire in you for that which is not of the Lord? Is there unrighteous desire in you? Of course. It's got to get out. You know why? It's a procreative seed. It conceives in you. And what it conceives is sin. And sin being born is death. That desire is deadly. It's poison. Think of it like a virus. It's in the world. The prince of the power of the air is spreading it all the time. The inoculation is Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. God doesn't give us bad things. He gives us good things. Anything that is good comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down, not from the place of darkness, but from the Father of lights, who is not double-minded. There is no spinning around with him from one position to another. He doesn't change his mind. He's not a shifting shadow. He's an everlasting, shining light. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In other words, he wants us to grow up into what he has made us to be. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Here's how you can really live the life that God intends you to live. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slowest still to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Patience will prepare you for the maturity that God desires in you. So get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and then deceive yourselves. Oh, it's enough to hear it. You've got to apply it. You've got to do what it says. And when you try to do what it says, what you will come up against is your own weakness. 
your own inability to do it. Don't hide that. Don't deny that. Let that be the author of your desire for more of the Lord. I need you more. I can't do it without you. I need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that some of you would seek after the Holy Spirit and stop wailing about in the waves. You want someone to save you, but the spirit that is in you wants to overflow you. And if he's not in you, then you don't know him. You say, well, I'm not sure. You should be. The spirit that God has given us is not a spirit of doubt and uncertainty. It's not a spirit of ignorance or in, uh, not knowing. So if there is doubt in you, bring it to the Lord and let him put his certainty into you. Anyone who listens to the word and then doesn't do anything with it is like someone who looks in a mirror and walks away and thinks, I don't remember what I look like. <laughs> Did you ever come to the mirror after having a lunch or whatever and found out that you had a four-foot piece of spinach flapping around in your gum somewhere, you know? Or you come back home and you find a great big spot on your tie or your blouse? How come no one told me? Well, you weren't looking. The word of the Lord is like a looking glass. God says, I want you to see yourself. And then I want you to know what I look like and make the comparison. Whoever looks intently into this perfect law will receive from it freedom and the ability to continue in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it. And they will be blessed. Listen, now this is true. This is real. They will be blessed in everything that they do. Doesn't mean you won't have trials. Doesn't mean you won't have tests. It means you'll rejoice in them and you'll have the wisdom to deal with them and the strength to deal with them. And none of it will be of you. And you will have the humility of knowing that none of it is of you. But you'll also have the confident, courageous faith of knowing that God supplies it all and never runs out and never runs dry and never stops, never turns away. Those who consider themselves religious and yet don't keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Here what he's saying is if you think you have faith but you can't even control your own tongue, then your faith is worthless. What God is looking for is the kind of faith that is really pure and faultless and it isn't self-centered, it's giving Caring for people who can't reward you. Looking after orphans and widows is a way of saying you're looking at people in need and in distress, not the people that are admired by the world or who are rich and can reward you, but people who can't offer anything to you, but to whom you have something to offer. And if you offer what you have in the Lord to them, then you are following the call of God and you will keep yourself from being polluted by the worldly way. In conclusion, testing, though it's a trial, perfects. It produces real patience and real maturity. Confident faith receives the wisdom of God, which is absolutely priceless, and perseverance, which is an eternal treasure. This patience that God gives you and the perseverance that he provides to you itself will give you protection and defense. If you're struggling because you feel like I, I face the same temptations over and over or I get confused about the same things over and over or I never seem to know where I stand or I never seem to be able to walk the path rightly, then recognize God is the one who can help you. But you've got to let go of the things that you're holding on to and let God really change you. And he can and he will. You've got to believe it and ask for it. 
and pray for it and pray with others for it. This week, I'm going to be speaking in our midweek prayer meeting about applying the pattern of patient prayer that uh, Pastoria Hazel preached on a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to be talking about very practical ways in which you and I can actually pray on our own with one another in a fashion in which we will see very quick results very often. Uh, I don't mean to say that I can dictate to you what the response of God will be, but what I have learned is when we are praying with deep faith, there is often a really astonishing result that can be seen very quickly. And if it's not very quickly, the result that God may have provided is simply the patience to wait for it. But also the absolute persuasion to act on whatever God says. Action empowers when we hear God's word and act on it. When we believe it and apply it, that will bring purity and power into our lives. As we move forward in the letter of James, these themes will be coming back again and again. The power of the tongue and the necessity for controlling it. The absolute necessity of the spirit in order to control the tongue, but also the absolute power of the spirit. That when the tongue is in the sway of the spirit, the Lord lights a fire of faith that can meet every challenge, that will purify every heart, that will answer every need, that will withhold that which is to be withheld and provide that which is to be provided and will sustain God wants transformation in your life and mine. He wants transformation in our world. God wants the kingdom in all of its glory to come into you in all of its story. There's so much that you and I look to in the world and get caught up in, in our flesh. If we're honest, every single one of us struggles with double-mindedness. God wants us to be honest. God sees that double-mindedness. But what God also is saying is, if you will allow me to test you, if you will respond to the tests that are going to come one way or another, whether you think you'll allow it or not, if you'll respond in faith, I will set you free from double-mindedness. And I will set you on a course of single-minded faith and patient perseverance. And I will satisfy your every need, your every desire. I will make you someone who is truly helpful to others. I will make you my witness. I will make you my own. Lord, we come to you today with hearts open to acknowledge our double-mindedness, our lack of faith, our doubt to confess our worldliness, our greediness, our fleshliness, to declare that we struggle to tame our tongues. Instead of being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, we are often hard-headed, closed off to listening, quick to speak, and fast to flash into anger. And even if it's just the anger in our own heart that we don't give vent to around us, you see and you know what is in us, Lord. You know the temptations that we struggle with. We know you're not the author of them, but we also know you are the solution. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to overcome every temptation, to respond well to every trial, to speak slowly and patiently and to avoid anger, to speak earnestly and honestly and righteously, not to adore wealth and riches, but instead to adore your wisdom and truth. 
and not to hold back good from others, but instead to give liberally to those in need, to pray frequently to those in pain, to share always to those around us with your love. Thank you, Lord, that you answer this prayer now. Will you say these words after me? Lord Jesus Christ, please give me wisdom. Please give me patience. Please give me faith. I believe that this week you will give me added wisdom, added patience, greater faith. Amen. He will do it. I want you to share the testimonies next week, all right? Share the testimonies of how God did that. And you know how he'll do it. He'll bring more tests and trials into your life. <laughs> you didn't know that was coming? You should. It's coming. So count on him to give you what you need to face it. Hey, I'm not kidding. You're going to have the tests and trials this week. And some of you who have the faith will have the testimony. Let it be all of you. Let it be all of us. And now in the spirit of the one who gives liberally to all those who ask faithfully, in the spirit of his strength, of his purity, his justness, go in the grace of God and the joy and the love of the Lord. Amen.